Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Why are you here? Isn't that a wonderful question? Perhaps confronting or maybe just confusing. Am I asking you why you're here in this place right now? Or am I being more philosophical, asking you why you exist? Why are you here? I suspect those two questions might be connected, at least for this morning. If you're here in church, well, that suggests that you have at least some idea that your purpose in life has something to do with God. But maybe you haven't thought too hard about the question, or perhaps just not in a while. Why are you here? Now, we're starting a new series today that will take us through to Easter. And this series has two threads that tie it together. The first is that the lead up to Easter is a time called Lent, which is often a time for reflection and reorientation. The second is that we'll be looking at some of the answers that Jesus gave to that question Why are you here? Times that he tells us why he has come. And our headline verse, if you like, for, for this series is John 6 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So in John's Gospel, Jesus talks about God as his Father, and especially as the Father who sent him. So when Jesus says he's come to do the will of him who sent me, he means doing God's will. This statement gives a a paradigm for Jesus' life. It tells us what he's on about. I mean, I guess you could even say it might be his life verse. It's also rather similar to something else that Jesus says. If you know the story from the night when he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays to his Father. He asks that this cup might be taken from him. But then he says, not my will be done, but yours. Right through to the cross, Jesus' life was all about doing God's will. And we'll come back to this idea at the end of the series as we're heading towards Easter. But in this, Jesus gives us a model. But it's one that we fall short of. He is the one who perfectly obeys God. He obeys all the laws. He lives exactly the sort of life that God wants. He demonstrates God's love, His mercy, His justice, His truth. And we, even at our best, cannot live up to that. We're called to be like Him, to imitate Him, to model our lives on Him. The Spirit within us helps us to do that far more than we could if we were just left to our own devices. But it's always an ideal that we can never reach. And it's because we fall short of that ideal that we're focusing on this verse during Lent. Because it is a good time for us to reorient ourselves towards Jesus, to why he came, and where we find ourselves as we seek to follow him. But first, I think it might help for us to talk a little bit about Lent, given 
As Baptists, we often don't tend to make so much of us. So as I said, we now find ourselves in a season called Lent. Lent was one of the traditional seasons of the church, like Advent, a time that leads up to one of the key celebrations of the church year. But where Advent looks forward in the hope of Jesus' coming, Lent is perhaps a bit more sombre. It begins on Ash Wednesday, which was a couple of weeks ago, where a common practice involves having ash put on your forehead in the shape of a cross. And along with that would be words like, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That comes from Genesis 3, when God sets out the consequences for human sinfulness. It's supposed to be a stark reminder of our human sinfulness, the way we fall short of God's ideal. Now, like most Baptist churches, we don't follow that closely to the traditional church calendar, but we can make use of it when it's going to be helpful for us. And so, for the rest of Lent, we're going to be working through this series as a time for us to try and reset and reorient. Because as many of you might know, Lent is often a time when people gave up something. Traditionally, it was about what you ate, uh, particularly abstaining from meat although, and sometimes other animal products as well. In modern times, you often hear of people giving up chocolate or maybe social media. But the point of this is, is not primarily to deny yourself something that you want, something you enjoy, but rather through that denial, through the disruption perhaps of our regular habits, it opens up a space for reorientation. Like with fasting more generally, the lack of something that we want serves as a reminder. Our hunger for food can remind us of the hunger that we should have for God, for His presence. And so the point of Lent is to make space to reorient towards Jesus. And the place of Lent in the lead-up to Easter draws our eyes especially to the cross to see the Lord of creation stretched out on that tree. And then it might turn our thoughts to, why did that happen? What was it that meant that Jesus would be mocked, abused, beaten, whipped, executed? With the reality that it was love that held him on the cross, far more than the nails. His love for us, for this whole world of stumbling, messed up humanity. Because He went to the cross for us, to deal with our sin, our rebellion against God, our destruction of His good creation. And so as we look forward to Easter, we turn inward to examine our own hearts, to be confronted by the reality that we fall short, we are one of those sinners. Our deeds needed His death. And this is where we come to repentance. You see, a vital part of reorienting ourselves to Jesus and His call on our lives is to stop and recognize where we fall short. Because if we can't do that, we can't change. And yet Jesus calls us to a life of holiness, of obedience. But if we can't stop to look at what we are doing, 
we're just going to end up staying in those same old sinful patterns without really realizing it. So there's another one of the key verses where Jesus tells us what he's on about that we're going to look at today. And this one comes from Luke 5.32. And there he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now this comes in the context where Jesus has been challenged about spending his time with tax collectors and sinners, the, the riffraff of society. And he's been challenged by the good Bible-believing people of the time. They didn't think he should be spending his time with those people who always did the wrong thing, who just weren't the right sort of people. And Jesus explains himself by saying, these are precisely the people he's come for. Sinners, people who have done the wrong thing, but also people who might recognise that they've done the wrong thing, that everything isn't all good between them and God, people who might be able to realise that they need what Jesus offers. But Jesus doesn't just say he's come for sinners, he says he's come to call sinners to repentance. Now, you might have heard it phrased this way, God loves you as you are, but because he loves you, he doesn't leave you as you are. And we're going to talk in... in Uh, later weeks, more about the better life that Jesus calls us into. But for now, I want to spend some time thinking about repentance, about what it is, what it involves, but also how might we find a place for repentance in our lives, uh, individually, but as a community together as well. And if we want to get a picture of what repentance means, a great place to start is with the story of John the Baptist. Now, you see, we often skip over the part of John the Baptist in the story of Jesus. Now, he announces Jesus is coming, basically says, gets ready. When Jesus comes, he baptizes him, and then he gets his head chopped off. But some of the Gospels do tell us a little bit more of that story. So in Luke 3, we find Luke telling us how John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Luke 3.3. And this comes just before that quote from Isaiah about preparing the way of the Lord. So John saw what he was doing as about getting ready for Jesus, getting people ready and aligned to what God was doing, what God was about to do. And now this baptism, this wasn't something completely new that he thought up, It's one of the rituals that was part of the culture. Now, we know from archaeology that there were all of these baths that were made for ritual washing. It was all about acknowledging there was some sort of impurity that needed to be washed away. For John the Baptist to baptise people, it means they were coming to him and acknowledging there was some sort of impurity, something that needed to be dealt with. So people would come to John, come in repentance, seeking forgiveness. Now, you don't do this unless you realise that you've done something that needs forgiving, that you, in some way, need to be cleansed. Now, perhaps some of these people came to him with already having some sense of having done wrong, of failure. 
But others, maybe they heard about this wild man, this prophet out in the wilderness, and they came to see what was going on, see what, what all the fuss was about. And they heard John's message of preparation, that the people needed to be cleansed for the coming of the Lord, for God's holy presence to be among them. And the people would have understood this. There's a whole bunch of laws in the Old Testament about purity, about the things that you need to do if you want to be able to approach the presence of God. Like if you wanted to go to the temple to make an offering, first you had to be clean, cleansed from ritual impurity as well as from moral impurity in order to be able to approach God. See, it was dangerous to approach a holy God if you are impure. So if God himself is coming, the people need to get ready. They need to purify themselves. But at the same time, John didn't see what he was doing as being the ultimate solution. It was more about getting people on the right page, getting them ready to be on board with what was coming. As, as John says himself, he was baptizing with water, but the one who is coming will baptize in spirit and fire. That's down in 3 verse 16. See, the real problem of humanity is something that mere water alone cannot fix. As we know, given we start, are starting to look forward towards Easter. But repentance, repentance remains the same, whether John the Baptist calls for it or when Jesus calls for it. Repentance, at least, requires a recognition of imperfection, that we have fallen short, that we've said or done or thought things we should not, or we've failed to do the things that we are supposed to do. Repentance often involves some degree of confession, of admitting what we've done wrong. Now, we don't see a public confession here as Luke tells this story, but when Matthew tells the same story, he, he includes the part where these people are confessing their sins as they are baptised. And that idea that Christians should confess to God and even to each other comes out in several of the letters in the New Testament, and in James and in 1 John. Importantly here, though, what we also see, see is that John challenges those who came to him seeking baptism. And his challenge is this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance cannot simply be a matter of confession, whether that's public or private. It has to involve a change in behaviour. Repentance means a changed life. What are the fruit of repentance that John gives us examples? Well, let's read from Luke 3, verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you were required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, Steve told us last week just how much Jesus talks all about money, but as you can see, it's not just Jesus. John the Baptist does it as well. He focuses here on how people deal with money, 
and possessions as the visible thing that will show if they have repented. They'll be characterized by generosity, not greed, sharing what they have, not taking advantage of others to get more money. Now, I'm sure we can think of ways that might apply to other areas of life too, but given what we heard last week, perhaps the focus on money is fitting. So what then is repentance? What repentance is about reorientation. It involves, firstly, a self-awareness and an honesty to admit that things are not as they should be, that we have thought, said, and done the wrong things. But it also means changing what we do, stopping doing those things. But remember what Jesus said. He said he came to call sinners to repentance. You see, he wasn't, didn't come expecting to find people doing everything right. Rather, he's looking for people who can admit that something is wrong, people who are willing to change. Jesus' mission is not to those who have it all together, but to those who know they haven't. So I want to invite you to join us in taking this Lent period as a time to reflect and reorient, to confess and repent, to change. And you see, we've been challenged these last few weeks in different ways. Challenged first to step out in adventurous faith, not alone, but as a community together. And then last week, Steve challenged us on the idea of partnership, of what we do with our money and possessions, how that reflects who we're partnering with. Challenging us to revisit our budgets and think through what God might be saying to us. Now, times of challenge can be hard. On the one hand, it can be tempting to just withdraw from that challenge, because challenges and change can be scary. We might feel that, that moment of conviction during a sermon, but then after a coffee or maybe getting home and having lunch, put the telly on, and we can forget about it and, and get on with our comfortable life just as it, as it always was. But if we keep doing that, we're basically hardening our hearts to God. We can make that choice, but that's not the path of following Jesus. The other thing that we might want to do, though, is to jump in straight away, without looking, just decide everything's going to change. Have you ever done that? And if you have, how long did it last? It's the same thing as with New Year's resolutions. People make grand plans to change everything, and a few weeks later, nothing's different. Because the reality is, not only are our existing habits hard to break, but the way we do things is linked to our desires, to the things we want, sometimes in ways that we realise, but other times, perhaps below the surface. And as long as those desires and the things that we are doing remain unexamined, they can exert a power over us, and it's hard to do much about that. And especially if we are feeling a call to step out in adventurous faith, it is so important 
that it is joined with confession and repentance. An acknowledgement that even if we step out and do great things, that doesn't mean that we are perfect people. It doesn't mean we've got it all right. We never, we'll never, at least not in this life, get past the need for repentance. But the danger is if we step out, if we do adventurous things and it works, that opens the door to pride. And I don't know about you, but I've heard a bunch of stories about churches and groups that have done something that seems great in their ministry, reaching out to the world, but then somewhere down the track, it all falls apart. Because people haven't stopped to check themselves. There hasn't been a culture that encourages reflection, confession, repentance. And so sins creep in, they grow, and they tear things apart. Whether that be pride, greed, abuse, bullying, whatever it might happen to be, and now repentance won't keep us safe from everything. But if we can cultivate a culture of repentance, at least that gives us the chance to deal with things before they get out of control. And you see, as Jesus went to sinners in need of repentance, our mission too is to those who might feel they don't have it all together, those who might say they don't belong here, even that we might be tempted to think, they don't belong here. But if we are to call others to repent, we need to demonstrate it in our own lives first. You see, adventurous faith takes courage, and part of that courage is facing up to ourselves. Another way to look at it is that one of the things we are called to do as followers of Jesus is to set aside the things that hold us back from following him. That's in Hebrews 12.1. And that's not just about ignoring the distractions out there, but dealing with what's in here. So often what holds us back is what's in our hearts, our minds, and which means we need to take the time to sit and reflect, to ask what are we feeling, what are we wanting, how is that driving our actions? And we need to, need to do that especially if it feels uncomfortable. Because if there's something you don't regularly do, it, it can feel hard. But I want to encourage you as we work through this series to build this habit into your walk with Jesus, to develop a rhythm of reflection, confession, and repentance that leads to change. You see, as Paul warned Timothy, we are to keep a close watch on our lives and our doctrine, what we believe and what we do. If we're to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul and strength, we need to pay attention to what we do, what we think, what we feel. Because that's all part of how we're called to following, follow Jesus. And so I'm going to make some space now for us to have a time of confession and repentance. I'm not going to prod you on specific things to focus on, rather I want to give you some broad questions to start this off. And the next few weeks, uh, we'll, we'll focus on some more specific aspects. And so the two questions I want you to start thinking of. Firstly, where have we, individually and as a community, failed to do the will of God our Father? 
And secondly, what would it look like for us to repent? How can we make space for that in our lives and in our community? You see, what's important is not a single advent of repentance, but cultivating a habit. What might that look like? Maybe it means individually, perhaps at the end of the day, when we look back on the day, not only giving thanks to God for all His good gifts, seeing where He's at work, but also acknowledging where we've fallen short. Or perhaps it's just on a weekend, you might have the time to stop and reflect. But also, how might we repent together? Are there ways that we can make space for repentance as a regular thing in our Sunday gatherings or in our small groups? Maybe there's a place to confess to someone else who you trust. Or perhaps even more importantly, to be able to confess to someone you've wronged. Maybe it's just we need some space and reminders for people to reflect, confess, and repent. And there's going to be a focus on these ideas through this series, which hopefully will help us to get the ball rolling on things like this. But I encourage all of you, when you go from here, to think, what might this look like for you and for us together? But for now, I want to draw your attention back to that first question as we make some space for repentance now. Now, this can be a bit confronting, so if you do need to reach out to someone you trust, or I, or I saw others would be happy to pray with you after the service as well, and especially if this is the first time that you've really come to repentance, to wanting to turn away from what you've been doing and turn to Jesus, He is waiting for you, offering forgiveness. But now, this is a chance for each of us, just quietly, to come before God, Open up to Him where we have fallen short as part of reorienting ourselves to Jesus, of keeping on moving towards a Jesus-shaped life for each of us and for us as a community together. Ask, what, ask God what needs to change. I'll just give you a few minutes of silence now to do that. As we wrap up for now, I want to encourage you again to make time for confession and repentance in your lives. But now I want to lead us in a prayer, and for those of you who have experience beyond the Baptist traditions, this one might be familiar to you, and I'll have it up on the screen if you want to pray it with me. Merciful God, our Maker and our Judge, We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and in what we have failed to do. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. We repent and are sorry for all our sins. Father, forgive us. Strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to finish on a note of encouragement. For sometimes it can be a little bit depressing focusing on how we fall short. But we confess and repent, not out of fear and misery, but out of faith. For we are told in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We confess out of an assurance of God's love, a confidence that we have been forgiven. But not only that, we repent in the confidence of those who have God's Spirit. We are the ones that the Spirit empowers to change. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We're set free of the controlling power of sin. We're set free from the condemnation of the accuser. We are free to confess our sins, to confess in freedom, and step forward in repentance into who God wants us to be, so that in all things we might be able to say, as Jesus did, that we are here to do the will of the Father.